So as we've been moving through the study, this session right here is the final chapter of the introduction to Genesis, believe it or not. Genesis chapters 1 through 11 are, are considered by most scholars to be the introduction to Genesis. It's a very broad, sweeping overview of the beginning of man. And Genesis 1 through 2, God and creation and his relations with creation. What he's created reveals to us who he is. So we open up Genesis 1 and 2 and we see what he's created. And that's the fingerprints of God all over everything. And so just like an investigator investigating a crime scene, we can see a fingerprint and identify who that was. We look around this world and we see God's fingerprints and we can identify who he is. So that opening portion of Genesis is telling us who God is, who he's created, that's you and me, reveals how he engages, right? Think about how you literally were made. You were made for engagement. You have your eyes to bring the world in. You have your ears and your nose, your mouth. Every part of you is, is designed for engagement to some degree. And I always like us to think along lines of God did not have to make it that way. And so if he did, there's a reason. And it tells us about who he is. And it tells us about what he wants. And he wants engagement. He wants us to see his beauty. He wants us to bring it in with our ears and hear his great words through worship or even just the quietness of nothing. He wants us to be aware of that. He wants us to smell the things. You walked into the room, Maricela, and you immediately said, what's that smell? I'm like, it's me. I have a headache. I put on oils. <laughs> so you just We've taken the world through those senses, right? So who he's created reveals how he wants to engage with us, right? You see, we're always looking to see God if we're doing Bible study right. If we're doing Bible study right, <laughs> the best way we can, our mission is to see God. I want to know you, God. We're always asking, what does this passage reveal to me about God? What am I learning about the most high God? We don't go to find ourselves or we end up lost, right? We seek to find God and then we're found, okay? And we've talked about this and I opened up the whole Bible study with this concept of avoiding the trap of treating the Bible like it's gonna solve our problems and be medicine or tips or <laughs> some of you might've even been raised like I was with this acronym. The Bible is basic instructions for before leaving earth, B-I-B-L-E. It's, a, it's cute for kids, but it sends us off on the wrong mindset. And we treat this holy revelation of who the creator of the universe is as a set of tips or do's and don'ts. And uh, we get really disillusioned when we end up treating God's word that way. And so many people have been. So we're going to protect that mindset in this study, in this church, so we would constantly treat God's word as holy, his revelation, and not just a list of do's and don'ts. Are we going to find ourselves when we get into the word? Of course we are, but that's secondary. The primary purpose is to find God and let him open us up and reveal us. And I said in the opening of our Bible study, all the way back in September, if you ever find yourself reading through your Bible study and you're bored, it, true confessions, anyone ever bored? Like you read the entire page and go, I, I have no idea what I just read. I have to read it all over again. Um, bored, um, confused, anyone confused? All right, this one's a real one. Annoyed. Anyone ever get annoyed reading the Bible? Or annoyed? Um, flabbergasted, there's a fun word to say. Um, stunned, shocked, right? If you're reading through the word and you're not reading those and having any of those reactions at all, I'm, I'm going to just submit to you, possibly you're not doing it right. Uh, <laughs> there will come a day when you're reading the Bible and you're going to get bored, angry, upset, uh, annoyed, flabbergasted, like, what is wrong with these people? <laughs> Anyone relate to that, right? All right. So if we have gone there to find ourselves and to fix what's broken and we feel broken in us, then when we get to those passages that bore us or annoy us, we could be tempted to say, well, this doesn't mean anything then to me. But if we switch that and we make it about God, then we can come back and say, whoa, what is God trying to tell me here? What is this about you, God? What are you revealing? Maybe I don't understand it yet. And ladies, listen, you have been given the most incredible gift. And when you said yes to Jesus, that gift was the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. 
I think we don't really uh, appreciate that as much. And we think of the Holy Spirit out there a bit, but it's the Holy Spirit is in us and it's helping, he's helping us understand his word. So when you come up against those moments, bored, shocked, amazed, annoyed, troubled, whatever, Holy Spirit, teach me. I got a blind spot here. I'm relying on old traditions here. Um, I, I don't get this and I don't feel like I can get it. I don't feel like I'm I'm smart enough, spiritual enough, blank enough, whatever. And just say, Holy Spirit, I need you right here. And trust the process of the Holy Spirit to work in you. And don't short circuit that by just pushing it aside. I'm guess Bible study is not for me. Of course, I'm preaching mm-hmm. to the choir because you're here. So good job. Hang in there. But there might come a day when you might feel that way. But listen, what I have to say right now isn't just for you in this room. It's for anybody that you then can bless later on as a reminder, mm-hmm. hearing it from me, putting it in different kinds of words. It might be an encouragement to somebody else because our goal here today isn't for me to be the disseminator of information. It's for me to be the encourager, right? And the equipper so that you can go and do the same, right? So we'll keep that in mind as we continue in our studies So I opened up lesson five with this question. What is God's desire for you and for mankind in general? And if you can make that answer your priority, you're going to find great satisfaction. What's God's desire? And and seeking that and looking for that and watching for hints of that and and hearing him yell that even in scripture, making that your priority. And you're going to avoid the trap of turning the Bible into that book of tips about how to have a happy life. And you're going to find the what that everyone is really longing for. And you know what that longing that everyone has that's common? See if you relate to this longing to be found, longing to be found. And we're found in many ways. We want to be known. We want to be heard. We want to be seen. We want to be assured. We want to be assured that there is hope. And if I could ask you right now to picture and imagine and think in your mind right now, just bring it to your mind right now, a relationship in your life that's challenging, that even when you're just barely starting to think about it right now, you might be, if I pressed in, you might cry. Your heart might raise, your hands might sweat. You you feel that anxiety almost even moving up inside of you. And I guarantee you one of the reasons why that particular relationship continues to be a source of difficulty for you because you don't feel heard. You think about how that relationship is going. You don't feel seen. You don't feel known. And no matter what you've done in the past to try to, to reach out, they're still not hearing you. Maybe they're just still hearing you as the old you, but you're saved now. You have Jesus now and you've changed and you've grown and you've repented, but they still have the old you and something's not there, but they can't see the new creation in you yet. But ladies, I promise you, if you will continue to engage faithfully in God's word with this mindset of looking for him first, this desire to be known, seen, heard, and have hope, assured hope will come from God. It will fill you. I'm telling you, it just will emanate from you and it'll start to transform your relationships, right? And then you pray for those difficult people and those difficult relationships in your life. God, bring the people into their life that they need so that they can hear that word so that we can have wholeness in our relationships. Heal what you need to heal in me the blind spots that need to be erased in me so that I can have that relationship with them through the power of your spirit. So if we want to grow in our faith, we cannot focus on what we're blocking from our minds, right? Well, think about how we feel in this culture right now. We feel more and more the pressure around our culture, saturating our thinking. And so we turn off social media, we turn off the news, We distance ourselves from those difficult relationships and have those boundaries. We we put those things out of our mind and life that we are feeling the negative influence from. But the truth is we have to do more. If we want to grow on our face, we can't focus just on what's being blocked out of our life. We have to focus on what we invite into our minds and into our hearts, right? And so your time in Genesis is going to offer a way to understand a way to understand what we all sense every day that is a strain on us. Our time in Genesis will give us wisdom to process through that. 
when we feel the twisting, when we feel the pulling force that keeps us away from the peace that we really want. So today, we're going to begin to look back at this account of false unity, <laughs> the Tower of Babel, and the move from this great division, chapter 11, to a great rescue, chapter 14, right? So I pray that our time together, we're going to find the answer to one of the great mysteries of life, the mystery of how we hunger for unity and we ache for togetherness, even while we live in such division, groups of us that are broken into cliques. And it's been like that since the dawn of time. Chapter 11, open your Bibles. We begin with the dispersion of those nations at Babel. Chapter 11, verse 1, the whole earth had a common language and a common vocabulary. Mm -hmm which is interesting considering chapter 10 just described the generations of Noah and each of their lands and their clans and their nations and their languages. <laughs> and so they all have these different languages according to chapter 10. And then here we are in chapter 11 and chapter 11 then really actually gives us the explanation about how those came to be. Uh, so how many of you noticed that and sense that, hey, wait, didn't, we, didn't they just say they had a whole bunch of languages and then chapter 11 opens up and they got one language? What are you doing, God? <laughs> What's the point here? So we go back and we rethink that and we go, right, I, I want it to be this way in chronological order, but the Lord ordered it differently. Why? What's going on? So it's out of order chronologically, but the intent was to order it topically. And there's a very significant reason why Moses wrote it the way he did in this um, in this order and so uh, hang in there I'm going to help hopefully if I do my job well tonight give you a couple of aha moments before you go home and so you'll understand oh my gosh that's so good oh my goodness that's so awesome how it connects like that get ready are you ready all right we're going to start actually back up a little bit to chapter 10 go ahead and look at verse 25 and I want you to make note in your bible who was Peleg who was Peleg so we went through all these genealogies to get all this information. And what are genealogies, ladies? Here's this guy, and here's his story. Here's this guy, here's his story. Here's that guy, here's his story, right? So this one guy, Peleg, because in his days, the earth was divided. So if you get a name and you get a because, that means his name must mean what it's pointing to. And it does. Peleg means division or divided. So God's judgment comes to the people. Originally, the big judgment comes um, with uh, the, the flood narrative, which is a deluge, because we're going to use the letter D to help us move through this passage here today. So deluge in chapter nine, uh, Noah and the deluge, uh, they had a wicked refusal to live righteously. And so God's judgment at Babel comes to the people by a dividing and a dispersing. So we have from deluge to division, right? But the big D word that we're going to focus on tonight is one you may not have thought of. And we're going to really move in on this in a minute. So feel free to write it down. We're going to kind of hop over it and then we're going to hop back to it, but write it down to get it ready. So flood was deluge. Babel is dividing. Babel is dispersing. And Bible is disinheriting disinheriting this is very important and it ties back to chapter 10 and then it's going to connect us to um what happens at the end of chapter 14. all right so go ahead and hop back those three d words again if you didn't get them all dividing dispersing and then finally disinheriting disinheriting dividing dispersing and disinheriting disinheriting. All right. So let's go ahead back to chapter 11. And we have the people in verse four, chapter 11, verse four of Genesis. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. So we may make a name for God. Nope. <laughs> we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise we will be doing exactly what the Lord God almighty commanded us to do, which was to scatter. Um, otherwise we will be scattered across the face of the entire earth. I irony of irony of irony, because that is literally what's going to happen to you guys in just a minute. Uh, otherwise we will be scattered across the face of the entire, entire earth. Okay. So the fact is that this was a religious tower. Um, and yet, um, the design of this religious tower, like all religious efforts actually is to make a name for man reveals a very big master motive behind religion of any kind. A means by which man attempts to share the glory with God, right? So what do we have in common with Babel and any religion? Basically, it's the attitude of don't call us God, we'll call you. And that's mm -hmm. literally what they're trying to do. 
call on God on their terms in their way. All right. And then in one of the most ironic verses in the Bible, you want to write the word irony in your notes. It's so awesome. And then connect it back to verse four is verse five. But the Lord came down to see what were they trying to do? Go up to the heavens. But the Lord came down, probably squinting like, what is this little tiny bump doing down there? But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the people has started building. And the Lord said, if as one people all sharing a common language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be beyond them, which is ironic in and of itself. And it's also hyperbole. Is there anything that's beyond us? Absolutely, there is. There's a lot. So he's kind of joking around in this in the levity. You can feel it in the whole passage. Nothing they plan to do will be beyond them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they won't be able to understand each other. Under Double underline, let us or let's go down. Let's go down. Um, obviously, as good Christian Protestants, you see let's us, let us go down. At any time in the Bible, you see God speaking in the plural like that. You're like, well, that's obviously Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, and it is, but it also isn't. So hang in there. We're going to get back to that in just a minute. All right. So let's think about God and what he's doing here. Does this seem mean-spirited and petty to you? I want you to think like a hardened, cynical atheist. Because yes, it does. This is cited by atheists who deny and put down God, which is hysterical. Um, yes, it feels petty and mean-spirited. Why would the great God of the universe care one whit if mankind tried to make a tower to bring him down? He's God. Who cares? And yet that is a pushback that your atheists or people who want to hate the Christian version of God will say. Wouldn't God be honored if people were trying to get up to him? No, because their point of their goal wasn't to make God's name great, but to make a name for themselves. And that's exactly what religion always does, which is exactly why people who are cynical are turned off by religion. Who cares? People are trying to make a name for themselves. Any good organization in the world should try to do that. When religion tries to copy that mindset, it ticks everybody else off who wants away from that. And so we keep thinking like good little Christian women and we don't think like the world thinks you're not going to attract them in and they get ticked off by passages like this. And if we can't soften that up and help them see why it's different, you're not going to reach those unsafe friends that are ticked off at God. And so shift your mindset and be willing to think like they might think uh, when it comes to passages like this. God desires a relationship with us. It's not about us making our name great. It's about him making his name great. So we can be satisfied with them. Why is the world so dissatisfied? We constantly try to get it, do it our own way, which is why I opened up with the whole point of don't make this about you, make it about God. If you shift that, you won't have that dissatisfaction anymore. But when man builds to God, the objective in religion is to be satisfied in our accomplishments. So God will come down and listen, approve us. What is the longing of all of our hearts with our relationships? Approval see me, know me, like me, <laughs> right? Instagram is filled with the influencers trying to make that happen, right? Approval. And that's wrong. Listen to why it's wrong though. Listen, when you are pressing in to show God how approval worthy you are, you are short circuiting the absolute power and greatness of the greatest quality of God. If there could be just one grace, what is grace? Unmerited favor. You can't earn it. God wants you to just to come to him without that approval because there is nothing you can do. Let it go and receive God's grace. That's what this is about. People rejecting God's grace, rejecting it. They want to just do it their own way. God's provided a way. No, I'm going to build my tower and do it my way. Because you know what it reminds me of? I'll just be honest. It reminds me of people who want to try a, a world philosophy or economic system, say socialism or communism. They blew it in the past. They didn't know how to do it right. We're going to try socialism again and do it better. We just know better. We're going to try harder. People do that all the time with religion and faith. Well, they didn't really know how to do it well in Babel. So we're going to try better and build our own temples and our own religion and our own ways to get to God. We'll just do it more better. <laughs> it never works. <laughs> right? We're still more better, not better, not going to happen. Verse eight. So the Lord scattered them exactly what they were afraid would happen across the face of the entire earth. And they stopped building the city. It turns out that is why it's called Babel, because that word is a, is a, it's a type of word. It's called an onomatopoeia. And it's a word that sounds the way it's said. So it's because they were babbling. It sounded like Babel to them. Um, 
It's where Babylon comes from, and it's still in that region named um, after that up in Iran. So there the Lord confused the language of the entire world, and from there the Lord scattered them across the face of the entire earth. And we get more details about this account later from also Moses when he writes about this whole incident uh, at the end of his life. He goes back and revisits this in this beautiful song. It's too long for me to read the whole thing to you tonight, but I want you to go ahead and hold your finger here and hop over to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32. And while you're getting there, make sure you make a note of it to put this on your assignments, uh, maybe to read the whole thing. Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32. And you'll see it's quite long. And again, we're not going to read the whole thing, but um, we're going to kind of move in here. Uh, read it on your own. It's a beautiful song. And again, it's a swan song in a sense. Moses wrote it at the end of his life. Deuteronomy chapter 32. All right, look up when you have it so I know, because I, I want us to have it all together. Deuteronomy 32. All right, find verse 8. We got there. Deuteronomy 32, 8. And here we go. This connects back to Genesis, what I just read. So here we go. When the Most High, that's El Elyon, when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided up humankind, listen to what he did. He did this. He set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the heavenly assembly, underline heavenly assembly. He set the boundaries of the people according to the number of the heavenly assembly. And all of you should be going, wait, what? There's a heavenly assembly? <laughs> and there's a number of them. Put a pause on that. Hold on. I'll read verse nine in just a minute. When you go back to chapter 10, you're going to count those nations up again later. I'm not going to do it right now. And you're going to see that the total table of nations includes 70 nations that end up getting divided up. There are 70 nations. And when he says, according to the number of the heavenly assembly that he divided, that must mean there were 70 in this heavenly assembly. Hmm. Verse nine. For the Lord's allotment is his people. In other words, all those other nations got divided up according to the assembly. They got assigned an assembly person, basically. Lowercase g, God, divinity, heavenly assembly. The Lord's allotment is his people. And who are his people? Jacob. That's, a, that's the name Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We'll get to these guys later. But Jacob is the name that refers to the nation of Israel. For his allotment is his people, Jacob, his special possession. Pause right there again. If you are a believer, if you have accepted Christ as your savior, you know this from our Romans study, then you have been grafted in. Romans chapter 11, you can write that down in this passage as well. Romans chapter 11, you're grafted in. That means you're his allotment. Maybe some of your Bibles say portion. Anyone have portion in their Bible? Okay. Portion. portion. For the Lord's portion or allotment is his people, Jacob, that's Israel, or now us under the new covenant, his special possession. God, listen, this is your D word, disinherit. God disinherits the nations, the 70, and begins to focus on one. And that's why this next section drills down into the focus because that one nation will come out of the genealogy of Shem. And that's exactly what happens next. So we go to chapter 10 and we get all the table of nations. So you have this idea of all these nations. You pop over and you, re you read Je uh, Deuteronomy 32 and you realize, wait, what? God specifically divided them up and then gave them each like a, a, an assemblyman a, a, a in charge, a heavenly in charge of that nation. And if you don't believe me on that, you go search up who is the um, assemblyman, basically, who's in charge of Persia. There's a prince uh, that God consults with uh, later on in Ezekiel. I'm going to jump out there and say maybe Ezekiel, but uh, Prince of Persia, let's basically call him. And he's a heavenly assemblyman who got assigned early on when the nations were divided up. Uh, he got assigned to um, the nation of Persia. I'm telling you, ladies, once you get this whole disinheriting thing, the rest of the Bible is going to go. Wait, I never saw that before. You want to really have your brain jogged? Go read Psalm 82. Psalm 82. We're not going to do that one tonight. Psalm 82. Write it down for later. And don't read it and just go, yeah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Uh-uh. <laughs> read it and go, wait, I never noticed that before. If I don't get a phone call or a text from some of you later, it's because you didn't really read it. 
you don't read it and you just went, oh, yeah, 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 I heard of that before. Nope. Read it with the heavenly assembly in mind. Read it. The heavenly assembly is also referred to as the divine council. Read it with divine council in mind. And uh, I better see a couple of texts, my star students. Here we go. So God disinherits. There we go. Back to 11. He disinherits the nations. The 70 begins to focus on one. That's why the next section, back to chapter 11, drill down on the focus because that one nation will come from, verse 10, this is the account of Shem. So we've got the big picture 70, and now we're going to drill down. Why? Because from Shem, we have Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, that the Shemites, the Semites are going to come, and we're going to move in tighter and tighter and tighter until we see Abram. And then from that point forward, we're on this straight beeline from Abram to Jesus Christ and to you and me. Yay. Right. So Shem was 100 years old. He becomes the father of Arphaxad two years after the flood. After becoming the father of Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years. Let's check this out. Shem living 500 years means he was a contemporary of Abram. They overlap. Their stories overlap. You can see Shem all the way to Abram and they overlap a little bit. And so that's pretty cool. Um, so Shem lived 500 years and had other sons and daughters. Now, very, very important when we get to chapter 14, this key point is going to be made. I want to see a light bulb when we get there. We got genealogy specifically giving us information about these people. And then something's going to happen in um, chapter 11 where someone's going to get introduced and there's not going to be any genealogy very significant. So we have 10 generations from Shem to Abram. Um, when verse 26, when Terah lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And this is the account of Terah. And he move in tighter and tighter and tighter, verse 27. And from here, we meet the main characters of the next 13 chapters and really do the rest of the entire Bible, how God worked through Abraham's lineage to bring about the blessing of the entire world and his ultimate descendant, Jesus Christ. Okay. So are you excited? This is cool stuff. <laughs> I get excited teaching it. So I... Hopefully you'll enjoy it with me. <laughs> uh, I get excited trying to figure out exactly what I'm going to keep in, in the talk and not because there's just so much to cover. Um, I don't know if I'm excited or I get stressed, but either way. <laughs> All right. So we have the account of Terah and we get some details. Terah becomes the father of Abram, Nahor, Haran, Haran, the father of Lot. Haran dies, land of his birth, Ur, the Chaldeans. His father, Terah, was still alive. Abram, Nahor, take wife for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, who was the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Verse 30, but Sarai was barren. She had no children. Sarai was barren. She had no children. Very interesting when barrenness is mentioned in the Bible. Something to pay attention to as you go through. There are six barren women named in the Bible. There are more than six, but there are six that get named. And three of the four matriarchs are barren. So beginning with Sarah, um, Rebecca, another matriarch to come. We haven't met her yet. And Rachel, another matriarch in Genesis. Of course, Hannah, the mother of the prophet Samuel, and I'll let you find the other four on your own. But there are six barren women, and barrenness is always a reminder that it's God who opens and God who closes. Mm -hmm. It's God who brings the exact timing of when things need to happen. And it's always a reminder of the beauty of timing and God's love and grace in our life. So verse 31, Sarah takes Abram's son, grandson, uh, grandson Lot, and son of Haran. And make a note of that. Sarah, uh, Tara, uh, took his son Abram, his um, grandson Lot. And uh, so who took Lot? Terah did. Make a note of that again, if you haven't already. Uh, his son Abram's wife with them. He set out from Ur of the Chaldees to go to Canaan when they came to Haran settled there. A lifetime of Terah was 205 years and he died in Haran. All right. Now we move to chapter 12 and the introduction of, of all of Genesis is over. Genesis 1 through 11. And uh, here we are in chapter 12. And we're really going to zoom in now on Abram. And so we open up and uh, the Lord says to Abram, we get no other introduction other than that. Make note of when you see Lord 
in all capitals. That's always referring to Yahweh. In your lesson to come, we're going to meet two other, uh, be introduced to two other names of God. And I would encourage you to use the parallel on Bible Gateway to be able to read the uh, names of God Bible as long, along with your study, because you'll see the names uh, more clearly written for you. You'll learn to identify them, but the names of God Bible will help in that process. Uh, it's available for free on Bible Gateways, where I recommend you go for it. All right. So God gives this beautiful, unconditional promise, and and you're going to learn the difference between a conditional covenant and an unconditional covenant. Um, A conditional means you do this, I do this. If you do this, then I will do this. But unconditional is no matter what, I'm doing this. It says on me, I'm doing this no matter what. That's what this covenant is right here. He gives a command and he says, this is what I'm going to do. Uh, Go to the nation, I'll show you. Um, Let's see. Ruth, maybe someone scarier than Ruth. Um, you yes. go outside and tell them to move away from this window. <laughs> this is super loud right here. There's the entire rest of the church that right here they have to congregate. <laughs> of course, <laughs> just ask them to move down just a little bit. It's I'm having a hard time talking over the noise. Not that you couldn't be scary, but you, just unlikely. It's unlikely. She's not very. Scary. No, she'll take care of. Yeah, get her out. That would be much scarier. You'd be even scarier than that. I'm gonna. I you could scary. really like. I'd hear them. Y'all didn't make noise at restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right, here we go. Covenants. Um, I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great so that you will exemplify divine blessing. That phrasing from the NET, I'm reading for NET, that phrasing from the NET, I think is just a beautiful wording and translation of that. And no matter what version you're using, they're all great ESV, NIV, and whatnot. But I love this. Listen again how they render this, that you will exemplify divine blessing. It's so important um, because going forward, people are, are going to look at Abram and should as an example of, oh, that's what divine blessing looks like. And so I can hold up Abram and what's happening in his life, and I can compare it to what's happening in mine. And if it's a disconnect there, and I don't, I don't have the divine blessing. Right. So I love that wording there. I'm going to, you will be an, you will exemplify divine blessing. This is chapter 12, verse three. I will bless those who bless you and listen to this, but the one who treats you lightly, I must curse. Most of your translations, I will curse those who curse you. How many of you say curse, curse in yours? First, raise your hand. Let me see them hands. Listen to this rendering. I love this because this helps you to see how better it ties into um, the 10 commandments. Cause this is from the 10 commandments. I will bless those who bless you, but the one who treats you lightly, I must curse. Um, Commandment, uh, do not use God's name in vain, means don't use God's name lightly. It doesn't just mean swearing, GD. It doesn't mean that. That's obviously a way to completely blow up using God's name. But that's not what that verse is talking about. It's not talking about cussing. It's talking about treating God's name lightly. It's wearing the name, I'm a Christian, like you have your little name tags on right now, and then not representing him well. That's why divine uh, goes back to verse two. You will exemplify. You're going to be the example of divine blessing. So again, I love the NHE for how they they go ahead and translate it. Treats you lightly. I must curse. It makes it so much more serious because most of us, when we read curse, curse, go, I would never curse God. I'm not a cursing type, but treat lightly conviction. Hello. Okay. So that all the families of the earth may receive blessing through you. And again, so easy just to pass by and go, oh yeah, all the families of the earth are going to get blessed through you because you're a Christian. You know, the end of the story, you accepted Jesus as your savior. You got baptized, but please, I beg of you, as you're doing your study, ask God to help you to read this as somebody who would not have a sympathy for this at all. You get it because you already have the Holy Spirit, but ask God to help you to see how your unsaved friends are reading this or your de-churched friends are reading this who don't get it anymore and don't want to and were turned off for whatever reason. They read a promise like this and go, whatever. But you know the specialness and God's going to help you as you study this, communicate that better to others. All right, so Abraham leaves just as the Lord told him to. And Lot went with him. I love that little tag-along. Lot is always characterized in these little tag-alongs. Always, like it's always an add-on. Every little part when he, Heron, um, the Atera takes him with them. Um, Abram, Lot goes along with them. Um, we get one little part here in verse five. Abram takes his wife Sarah, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated um, with the people they had acquired. It's, it's it's Moses saying, "Get ready, stuff's gonna go down with Lot." 
Because <laughs> it does. It's a lot of trouble. <laughs> oh, come on. Give that one to me. It's a little, a little play on the word lot there. All right. You're tired. Whatever. Um, okay. Abraham travels to the land as far as Shechem. And verse nine, Abraham continually journeyed by stages into the down to the Negev. All right. So we have this first test of Abram in verse 10. There's a famine in the land. Whenever there's a famine, this is always an opportunity for people to be tested in their faith. Always. Every single occurrence as you move through the patriarch's life, underline famine and notice what happens in that moment and how people pretty well botch it up pretty much every time. Why? Why? Hunger is extreme need and a very powerful driving force. And it will trump your love for God. It will trump your obedience and your tendency to be obedient to God. You're hungry and you love your family and you want to make sure there's a way. And all you can hear is the growling of your stomach and the cries of your children. And you want to find a way, right? But we have to have to see the, if, (laughs) if he hadn't done that, then this wouldn't have happened. And here's what also happens. Every time there's a famine and somebody blows it and moves where they shouldn't have moved and doesn't trust God as long as it hung in there for God's timing to just be finally played out, God still blesses them in the end. They go down and they blow it and God says, all right, I'm going to put your flags on this Egyptian guy, but you're going to get a ton of his stuff. (laughs) That's literally what happens. So he does. He goes in there and this really odd questionable situation scenario happens with Abram and tells his wife, Hey, you're super hot and they're going to notice and I don't want to get killed. And so could you pretend to be my sister? And she does. And uh, we read this with our little Christian lens from 2022 Western America and feminist uh, upbringing that we have. And we would have looked at our husband and said, get real (laughs) no figure this out man little house no but we have to remember that's not our culture it's not our time back in those days they killed the husband for the wife but if you were the brother they would bargain with the brother and uh, trade goods for the wife and it was perfectly acceptable uh, acceptable cultural um happening was the way culture went through now listen I would press you to find a Bible story that shows the the leader, the main guy, go from Abraham to Daniel, Ezekiel, to John, to anybody you want to name, who moved in on a culture and picketed and forced the culture to change to God's way. There is none. They don't do it. They become a culture of their own with God. And they move through and they live in that culture the way it was. And that's what Abraham's doing. There's people who disagree with me on this point. I've read a lot of the commentaries on it. Something complete disobedience. Abraham was out of line. Should never have done this. Uh, Others say, um, no, it was part of the culture. and, And what he did was completely acceptable. I'm on the, it's part of the culture. Not great on the completely acceptable, but it is literally how the culture functioned at the time. So Abraham preserves his life. And um, you can use that as a moment of lack of faith if you want to. I don't see that. I don't see anywhere one time in all of scripture that Abraham is condemned for that behavior. So that if you read the New Testament commentary, the New Testament commentary on the old. So when you read that's where I go to find out, does anyone condemn him in the New Testament? And there's no condemnation. So I'm like, well, it must not have been a big deal to God. We won't park it too much more on that point. But I will say this. It ended up becoming quite a blessing. Uh, so of course, I kind of feel a little bit sorry for Pharaoh and his whole household with severe disease because of Sarai, Abram's wife. But then you're like, yeah, they're pretty jerky Egyptians. And so maybe they kind of deserved it. Anyway, that's not, neither here nor there. Um, so Pharaoh gives all these possessions and he gets, they end up taking some trouble with them. So they get the possessions, but they end up taking this one particular person with them that we're going to find out about later. And that person ends up in their caravan. And in this lesson, you're going to read all about that person and realize, oh, wow, that was probably not a good choice. I'll let you find that one out later. You better be texting me throughout the lesson, by the way. Hey, I just got to that part you told me about. Verse chapter 13, Abraham went up from uh, Egypt into the Negev. He took his wife, all his possessions with him, as well as Lot. There's that tag on Lot again. Now, Abram was very wealthy in livestock, silver, gold. He journeyed from place to place from the negative as far as Bethel, underline Bethel. If you're using your highlighters, that's going to be in green because it's a place. We highlight those in green. 
Um, Beth L, I uh, want to teach you a little bit of Hebrew on this particular word. As you're reading the English, any word that you come across in the Hebrew that has the E-L somewhere in it, uh, that means it's about God. L is God. L. Um, so then you think, okay, the L is God. What's the Beth? Um, if you want to learn Hebrew real quick, at least the ABCs, open up to Psalm 119. A good Bible will have it written in, he in Hebrew, the little letters, Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Dalet. It'll say it with Psalm 119. Um, so Beth is the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet. You can find it again in Psalm 119. Second letter of the Hebrew alphabet is also a word. Um, Hebrew is a pictorial language, um, not unlike, you know, Chinese, Japanese, any of the Eastern languages. They all have pictorial representations. We don't have that in English. Um, side note, all languages of the world point to Jerusalem, by the way. They're either written right to left or left to right, doesn't matter, but whatever they're written in, they're pointing to Jerusalem. A little side note for you there, if you want to think about it. Um, so Bethel is, um, the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet is Beit or Beth, and it means house, house. Oh, little town of Bethlehem, so house of bread, Bethlehem, or Bethel, house of God significant location in the Bible, and I look for it as it comes up. He returns to the place where he had pitched his tent at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, or Ai. This is the place where he had first built the altar. He's back there again. Every time he does something and he's back on track, builds an altar. Any altars built in Egypt? Nope. <laughs> like, that was a oops. <laughs> Let's get back out of there. We're not going to put any altars down in Egypt. You don't have to be mindful of those scenarios in life, but this one he does because God does, does bring him out safely. All right. Now, Lot was traveling with Abram, had flocks, herds, and tents. Land can't support them. So Abram demonstrates his magnanimousness, magnanimity. <laughs> and he says, all right, we can't fight about all this property. We're being blessed so much by God because God's fulfilling Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Bless, bless, curse, curse. I'll make you a great nation and great name. Now I've got all this stuff and we can't support the land or the land can't support us. Hey, Lot, you pick, you look and pick. I'll go the opposite of wherever you go. And uh, so Lot looks up to this beautiful area there and says, perfect, I'll take that land. And it was perfect. So there, there's no reason to say, well, it probably wasn't that great anyway. And he didn't realize he was just looking at this part. No, it's beautiful. To this day, it's still beautiful. And so uh, Abraham, uh, Abram, he's going to get his name changed soon. So I'm not going to, you know who I'm talking about. I, I always get, I crisscross it all the time. So Lot does, he looks up. He chooses the region toward Jordan, travels toward the east, and they separate. And the Moses, the narrator here, gives us a little side note. Verse 13, now the people of Sodom were extremely wicked rebels against the Lord. After Lot had departed, the Lord said to Abram, here's the deal. <laughs> Abram just gave Lot this whole other land, and God basically comes back to him and says, you know what? It's all yours anyway, so good job on that. Um, look from the place where you stand, north, south, east, and west. I'm going to give this all to you. And more. He doesn't even realize how much more. Israel has never, ever, ever owned all of the land that God has yet to, has promised to them. They did pretty good in 1948 when they got the nation of Israel, but that's not even barely anything compared to what you read. And you're going to read more because in the next covenant coming up and then this next lesson, you're going to see this massive territory God's going to give them. And what they have now in Israel is just like this, pink, this little part. Pretty cool. Good job, 1948. Uh, take that, Hitler. Um and, uh, but yeah, no, he's going to get even a lot more. So he says, get up, walk around the land. I'm going to give this all to you. Have confidence. Let's go on a walk about. So he does. Abraham moves his tents, goes by the Oaks of Mamre and Hebron, builds another altar there. So I had you list out three altars in this last lesson, and uh, you're going to do another one in this lesson to come. All right. So here we go. This first, there's actually several firsts in this chapter 14. Uh, this is the first record of a war and description of an interesting war. And, um, you know, there's a lot of details here. We got the name of this king, where he's from, the name of that king, where he's from. And I had you try to outline it. It took me forever to figure out a way to get you to outline it. So I felt like it would be helpful and hopefully it helped. But you have to understand there's a reason. We talked about this in the first lesson. If there's a lot of detail, there's a reason for it. And this basically sets up this line that comes from Ham against the line that comes from Shem. And it's these two lines that end up at war. And it's part of the reason why Abram does what he does um, after this battle and they take um, 
Abram's nephew. So the four victorious kings, boo, the bad guys. When I taught this lesson to fifth graders, and I taught this lesson over and over again for 10 years, um, I taught this lesson to fifth graders. We'd read this passage and I would have them boo and hiss like those old fashioned movies. <laughs> and I would say the bad guy, boo, good guy, yay. You want to try it? Be fun. They also took Abram's nephew. He'd be like an in-between. Is he a good guy or a bad guy? They also took Abram's nephew, Lot, verse 12, and his possessions when they left for Lot was living in Sodom. Again, another little comma aside about Lot. So a fugitive comes, tells Abraham, and uh, <laughs> honestly, human in your human spirit, you hear your nephew Lot is taken. You're like, well, you know what? Too bad. <laughs> Too bad. You've kind of been a pain this whole time. But Abraham, that's mess with the bull and get the horns. I mean, they really took him down. So Abraham gets his 318 trained men and he pursues him, has his nighttime raid. It's, it's so dramatic. I hope that when they're done filming The Chosen Life of Jesus, that they switch over and do Abram because I think they could kill it. If you haven't watched The Chosen, by the way, you need to be watching amazing so that's another aside uh, all right so they beat him up he retrieves the stolen property he also brought back his nephew lot his possessions as well as the women and the rest of the people all right so we're not gonna hear from about lot for a while uh, you're gonna get a little bit of him in this chapter to come up verse 17 after abram returned from defeating Kedolamar and the kings who were with him the king of sodom went out to meet abram in this valley of shaveh known as the king's valley and here we go. Mysterious Melchizedek. It's introduced in verse 18. Um, King of Melchizedek. Uh, his name in Hebrew is Melchizedek. T-Z. Like Tzeki. But it's it's Tzek. So Melchizedek. Mel is two words. And um, very fascinating, mysterious, and wonderful. Uh, I hope you do some more of your own research on him. But this whole... Um, this whole priest and what he what he ends up meaning is extremely significant. And also want you to make note of Moses style in writing this. He's given us so many details on these genealogies. This guy went to this guy, went to this guy, went to this guy. Whenever a new guy is introduced, you get this whole backstory on him. You get Melchizedek and you get this little tiny bit with no genealogy on him, which is why in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews makes note of that and says a man without genealogy, with no father, no mother, and a lot of very literal, well-meaning, but very, they take scripture extremely literally, painfully, read that and go, oh, he must have been a supernatural being. He has no father and no mother. Not what it says. <laughs> just says in juxtaposition of everything that Moses has just written about all these people with all these details about their genealogy, whoop, we go to Melchizedek. No, no genealogy. No family, no mom, no dad. Um, Malkitzedek literally means my king. That's Malki. My king is Tzedek, and that's righteous. It does not mean king of righteousness. Um, it means my king is um, righteous. There's a personal pronoun that's possessive in that. Um, okay, so back to uh 14th there um so king of salem uh there's another name to underline um salem hebrew word is actually written with an sh not an s we see the s in your writing probably it's actually shalem shlem and uh, we get our word uh, ultimately uh jerusalem it means peace peace so he is uh, my king of righteousness the king of peace who brings out bread and wine uh, bread and wine is a, is two things. Number one, it's a euphemism, and it means a huge feast was prepared. It doesn't mean he literally showed up with, you know, here's your Panera loaf of bread and here's a glass of wine. <laughs> bread and wine is a euphemism. It means you get a big spread. You're getting the whole everything. But it also is a nod to, which, again, the reader of the, in the Old Testament days wouldn't have known this. We do. It's a nod to Jesus Christ. Only reason why we know that, because the Old Testament makes a big deal out of him. And Psalm 110 makes a huge deal out of him in this one tiny phrase that the New Testament writer um, quotes. So he's an example of Christ. He's a prefigurement of Christ. He's not, I don't believe he's Christ himself, although some people um, do believe that. Um, he was the priest of the Most High God. That's El Elyon. 
And he blessed Abraham saying, yeah. blessed be Abram with the, by the most high God, creator of heaven and earth, worthy of praise is the most high God who delivered your enemies into your hand. Abram gave Melchizedek a 10th of everything. And from here we get a pattern of tithing, which is repeated in um, Exodus and Leviticus. Uh, just a side note on tithing. There is no mention of tithing at all in any passage after the new covenant. There's no tithing. Uh, there's no need for you to tithe. You don't need to give 10%. Don't tell Joe I said that. Actually, do tell Joe because you don't need to tithe. You're supposed to give it all. Hey, the elders will love that. Um, there is no tithing in the New Testament. You're under the new covenant. You're supposed to give everything to God. So tithe what you can. If you want to consider a tithe, 10% is a good frame of reference. But there is zero biblical precedent for the new covenant to be giving a 10% tithe. It's a lovely idea. Give 20. Give 100. Give 93 give two, give what you can give, but give generously and um, model your life after people who give generously like Abram did. When you know the most high God, you don't have to worry about it. God's going to provide. That's why Abraham didn't balk at splitting the land with Lot. God's got it all anyway. Pick whatever you want, Lot. <laughs> you choose right, I'll choose left. It doesn't end up mattering because it's all the Lord's anyway. And he's already promised to bless me. I have no care about that anymore. When we can live like that, uh, what a blessing. Instead of thinking about, can I make my 10%? Just I'll take it all, Lord. I'll, I'll use every penny for you. So the king of Sodom says to Abram, give me the people and take possession for yourself. But Abraham replied to the king, I raise my hand to the Lord, most high God, creator of heaven and earth, and vow I will take nothing belonging to you. He must have had a super high ick vibe on this Sodom king guy. Uh, I'm not going to take anything from you, weirdo, because he just, we don't know what's, word must have been out already about the icky stuff that's going on in Sodom. He want anything to do with this guy. All he wants is lot back, and he barely probably even wanted that. Take, I'll take nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or strap of a sandal. So I, I love the hyperbole here. It means, ew, I don't want anything associated with you and your disgusting ways. Um, that, that way you can never say it's I who made Abram rich. I will take nothing except compensation for the young men, what they've eaten us for the share of the young men. I'll let them take their share. All right. Wow. <laughs> so ladies, listen, when you read God's word and reread it and study it and, and study it over and over again and make these connections like we've done tonight with Deuteronomy 32, like you're going to do later with Psalm 82. When you read that, remember, you're supposed to text me. <laughs> you will be so excited to see how God was bringing it together and how important it is to understand that God disinherited the other nations and that he pulled this portion to himself. It starts to explain a lot, especially in the spiritual realm, why we are called God's chosen people pulled out. And um, how he differentiates his people from the rest of the nations. But listen, very important. Melchizedek, Melchizedek, you might have heard it pronounced. Melchizedek is a Canaanite. So all along, all along, God has been pulling out special people out from the other nations. These nations that he disinherited. But he's like, you, you're mine. Boop, I'm going to bring you out. Melchizedek is one of them. There's holy people in each of these nations that were righteous before God. You're going to see that throughout the story, how God blesses and pulls out these righteous people, even from paganism. And ladies, if you know Jesus Christ, you've been pulled out from paganism. You've been pulled out and you can go before the Lord and say, God, naming this person, that person, that family member that you love so much, but isn't in the family. God, bring people into their life to help them to see you. Pull them out like you did. Did they worship God most high like Melchizedek? I pray that you will have that kind of joy and spirit as you do your study. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the power of life in your word. And we pray that it continue to, um, to feed us and nourish us and give us the wisdom that we so long for. And bless these ladies as they head into home and do their life and uh, Lord, during their study time as well and can increase the joy that they have in their fellowship and the wisdom that they need as they understand your word. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. And everyone said, oh, yeah.